Now let's turn our Bibles together to Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. You can find this passage in your Pew Bibles, but I forgot to look up the pages, but I believe in your ability to find Hebrews 3. <laughs> the ESV version of the text will be displayed on the screen. Again, that's Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. Let's begin. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. May God bless the reading of his word. Come, Chris. Good morning again, Crossbridge. I have to say it's really good to see everyone today. It's really been such a huge blessing to be able to sing with you, uh, to be able to pray with you together, just to be able to worship with you together after a year and a half of remote worship. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Chris, and me, my wife Emily, and our sons Zachary and Jeremy are missionaries sent by this church to Japan. And honestly, I didn't think that our family would still be here when Crossbridge reopened because we had planned to leave for Japan all the way back in January. And even when we were delayed, I thought, certainly for sure, by the summer, we would definitely be there. And yet, here we still are. God's timing and God's wisdom don't always go according to our own plans. Now, sometimes when things don't go according to our plans, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe some of you have a craving for Chick-fil-A right now, except that you just realized that today's Sunday and Chick-fil-A is closed. Or maybe this past summer, some of you guys went to Six Flags, and maybe on the day that you went, it thunderstormed, shutting down most of the rides. You know, circumstances like these can be frustrating can be irritating, but in the grand scheme of things, not really devastating, not really that big of a deal. But sometimes when things don't go our way, they are a big deal. Maybe during the pandemic, 
you suddenly found yourself out of work. Or maybe you didn't get into college and you find yourself having to take a gap year involuntarily. Or maybe your longtime boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with you suddenly, unexpectedly. You know, when things like that happen, it can create a lot of stress, it can create a lot of anxiety, it can cause us to really struggle with our identity, struggle with our self-worth. For us, we quit our jobs back in January, we passed on our ministries to other people, expecting to leave in a couple weeks, and yet nine months later, we're still here. You know, circumstances that can cause us to really wrestle with God in prayer. Circumstances that can sometimes even cause us to wrestle with our own faith. I was recently reading a book by Japanese author Ayako Miura entitled Shiokari Pass. It's a novel uh, based on a true story. Uh, the main character, Nobuo Nagano, basically grows up in his childhood in an upper-class Japanese family in the late 19th century. And he grows up with only his father and his grandmother because his mother passed away shortly after giving birth to him. And so throughout his early childhood, he feels this tugging, this yearning in his heart to want to know what his mother was like, to want to have this relationship with someone who just isn't there. And then suddenly one day, his grandmother passes away, maybe from a stroke or something. And his entire life is turned upside down. Because on that day, he finds out that his mother is still alive. And his mother on that day comes back to live with them. Because you see, his mother, whose name is Kiku, Kiku, shortly uh, when, after giving birth, when Nobu was just a baby, Nobu's grandmother found out that Kiku was a Christian. And when she found out, she was furious. And she gave Kiku an ultimatum. Either she could renounce her faith or she would be cast out from the house, forced to leave her family. What an incredibly impossible, difficult decision. To be forced to choose between your God and your family. Kiku ultimately chooses to be faithful to Jesus, but for years she struggles with this decision, struggles with wondering whether she did the right thing. And Nobul, Nobul just can't understand how his mother could have chosen to be cast out from the house, how his mother could have chosen to be an outcast in society instead of staying there with him and being there as his mother growing up. I wonder how we might respond if we were forced into such a struggle, such a, such a question, such a, such a test of faith. Maybe some of you are facing some kind of test of faith like that right now. So we're going through the book of Hebrews. And so far in Hebrews, in answer to some of this, Hebrews has been declaring that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus, the founder and author of our salvation, made perfect through suffering, that Jesus is better. And today, we come to our second passage of exhortation embedded in this beginning 
part of Hebrews, which declares that Jesus is better. And in this second passage of exhortation, it uses Israel wandering in the wilderness as an object lesson to urge us towards faithfulness. It contrasts the unfaithfulness of Israel to urge us to be faithful to Jesus from beginning all the way to end. It's a passage that urges us to say that we have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So how does our passage exactly use Israel as an object lesson to teach us this, the, what it's trying to urge us towards, to teach us to be faithful to Jesus? Well, the first thing is, uh, as, we, as we look at the passage, it starts by quoting Psalm 95. And in quoting Psalm 95, it describes everything that, it, that has happened uh, in the books of Exodus and Numbers. It describes how Israel rebelled even though God had proved himself over and over and over and over again in redeeming Israel from slavery. We, we hear, you, you, you guys probably know the story. Uh, you might know the story. God telling Moses to go up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh refusing. And so God unleashes the ten plagues on Egypt. You know, the plagues of blood, the plagues of frogs, and so on. And eventually, Pharaoh relents. And as Israel leaves, God shows his presence to Israel through the pillars of fire and the pillars of smoke and clouds. And then when Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues, and Israel finds himself stuck between the sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other, God parts the sea so that Israel can walk through on dry land. Here's an artist's depiction of what that might have looked like to kind of give you a picture of just the, the awesomeness of what Israel had experienced in all that God was doing and all that God had done in delivering them from slavery and delivering them from Egypt. And yet, not a few weeks later, when Israel started to face some hardship, they started to grumble. When they lost control of their lives and started to, you know, weren't able to find food and water, they, they threatened to kill Moses and threatened to go back to Egypt, threatened to go back to slavery. Israel was basically saying, I'd rather go back to what I know in slavery than put my trust in this God who I, we don't know where he's leading us. And even though this God has done so many amazing things, Israel said, I just, I just don't trust this God. I'd rather be in control and slavery than give up control of my life and follow wherever this God who's, who's delivered us from slavery is leading. Fast forward a couple years. During that period of time, oops, fast forward a couple years. During that period of time, um, God has shown himself to Israel at Mount Sinai, shown his awesome power through the fire, the smoke, the lightning, the thunder, the sound of trumpets. God has shown Israel his righteousness and his justice in, in bringing forth judgment when, they show, when they're unfaithful. But God has also shown himself as a God, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's shown this to them through his forgiveness, 
He's shown this to them through his continued provision, through his continued miraculous provision. And yet, when we get to Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14, Israel once again rebels. See, God tells Moses, send 12 spies into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And the 12 spies go there and they come back and they say, the land of Canaan is amazing. It's a land filled with milk and honey, just like we were told. But there are these cities that are incredibly fortified with powerful people guarding them. And Israel trembles in fear. There are giants there. There's no way we can go there. You know, we're just, if we go there, we're going to get slaughtered. And so again they rebel and they say, we're going back to Egypt. And again, they show their unfaithfulness and turn their back on God. And so what does God do? God brings forth his judgment and says, no one in that generation is going to enter the promised land. No one except for two people, Caleb and Joshua, the only two people, the only two of the spies who said, yes, that's true, but God has proven himself so far and God will remain faithful with us and so we should go. Everyone else said they wanted to go back to Egypt. And so God said that they shall never enter his rest. So what do we learn from Israel in the wilderness? Well, the first lesson that we learn, the first lesson that the author of Hebrews draws is to urge us to be alert to the dangers of unbelief. Be alert to the dangers of unbelief. We read in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That first phrase, take care, is translated in a lot of other English translations as see to it. The idea is, you know, be alert, be vigilant, look, look into your hearts, look, look to see whether unbelief is creeping into your heart, and be aware that there's danger when that unbelief creeps in. You guys know the old hymn where that goes, was blind, but now I see? Well, the idea is now that you see, don't willingly close your eyes and willingly make yourself blind to what might be happening inside your heart because God has given us sight to be able to see those things. We might say, we'll never be like Israel. We'll never turn our backs on God. But Israel saw even more amazing things than we have, and yet they turned their backs on God. Because you see, unbelief doesn't usually come about suddenly, like just like that. Unbelief usually creeps in slowly. It slowly erodes away at our heart until one day when we face that test of faith, our faith has been eroded so much that we have nothing left to stand on. You guys remember that metaphor uh, that Dr. Arthurs was using of the ship drifting away from safe harbor. The image isn't of a ship aiming for that harbor and then suddenly deciding at the last second to turn 90 degrees and go the opposite direction. The images of a ship, you know, being pushed by the waves, drifting, letting itself go, you know, maybe five degrees this way, five degrees this way, five degrees this way, until eventually the ship is aimed somewhere completely different, where the safe harbor is not even in sight. Because you see, a lot, there are circumstances that happen in our life which slowly push us away, slowly test our faith. Maybe those circumstances are friends who constantly badger us about how unreasonable it is 
to believe in the Bible, to trust in the Bible, to believe in Jesus. Or maybe those circumstances are the cultural pressures we face to, to look at the world through the lens that our culture looks at when, those lens, when that lens doesn't align with God's values and the way God has revealed the, the truth, uh, truth to us. Or maybe it's the stresses, the anxieties of this world, which slowly creep into our hearts the way that weeds slowly encroach on a lawn. All these different things can slowly erode at our faith. And if we're not vigilant, if we're not alert, eventually we find ourselves standing on nothing. And so the author of Hebrews is urging us to be alert to the dangers of unbelief, to be alert to how our circumstances around us might be pushing our ship away from that safe harbor. Now, as we go into look in other parts of our passage, we see even more what these dangers of unbelief look like. We see even more what exactly is it that we need to be alert to. Verses 15, 15 through 19 talk about how, how Israel rebelled, how they were disobedient, how they turned their backs on God. And we read in verses 18 through 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And these two verses almost make synonymous through kind of this parallel uh, construct, almost makes synonymous disobedience and unbelief. Make, make these two terms are almost seen to be identical to one another. Because you see, faith isn't just a feeling. Faith is the way in which we view things such that faith leads to obedience. And many of you all are familiar with this idea of how belief leads to obedience. A lot of you guys have read from the book of James, chapter 2, that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's because faith is more than just a feeling. Because when we have faith in God, when we trust God, that means we're saying we no longer keep control of our lives to ourselves. Because we trust in the God who is better, because we trust in the God who is sovereign, because we trust in the God who is good, all-knowing, and loving, we give control of our lives to God, who we say that we follow by faith. And so, when, when, we, when, when we talk about belief, belief isn't something that's just something where, that makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. When we say we believe in God, it leads to obedience. So maybe to kind of explore that a little bit far further, we, we look in verse 13 where it talks about how this idea of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This word hardened actually is two, brings to mind two different connotations uh, from the story of Exodus, from the story of Israel. The first connotation is of that from Pharaoh. For those of you who've read Exodus, repeatedly in Exodus, over and over again, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It talks about how Pharaoh refused to let God's people go, and instead his heart was hardened. What does this mean, though? Well, you see, Pharaoh was the king of Egypt, the predominant civilization of that time. 
Pharaoh was the leader. Pharaoh had all power over the civilization. Pharaoh had power over the Hebrews who were his slaves. And Pharaoh, with his hardened heart, refused to cede control of his sovereignty to the sovereignty of God. Pharaoh basically said, I am king. And and when I am king, there's no one else I'm listening to. Not Moses, not Aaron, not Yahweh, this God who I've never heard of before. Pharaoh's heart was hardened because he wanted to keep in control of his kingdom, of what he thought was his rights. The other image that comes to mind with the word hardened is that of the stiff-necked donkey. It's an it's a illustration that, or it's something that God repeatedly says about Israel. Repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, God talks about Israel as being stiff-necked. Now, what does that mean to be stiff-necked? Does that mean like you slept poorly and you have a little crick? Now, the, the idea is of a, a donkey who, you know, is being either someone riding the donkey or someone sitting on a wagon behind the donkey and controlling the donkey with reins, right? And so, Usually, when you want the donkey to turn right, you pull on the reins so that the donkey's head turns right and, fall, and goes right in the direction that the rider is desiring the donkey to go. Well, if the donkey is stiff-necked, then that means the donkey is refusing to turn its head. The rider might tug on the right side or might tug on the left side because it wants the donkey to go in a certain direction, and the donkey says, no, my... My neck is stiff. I, I, I think I know what the right path is, and so I'm going to go the way I want to go. The donkey might be veering off into a canyon, and the rider might be trying to tug and trying to correct the donkey, but the stiff neck donkey says, no, I think this is the right way. I'm going to go this way. And so part of the idea of having a hardened heart is this idea that we know what's best for us, that we want to be in control of our lives and that we refuse to cede control of of our lives to God. Faith leads to obedience. Unbelief is related to this idea of a hardened heart where we refuse to follow God. It's like a football team, you know, saying that they have faith in their kicker, but then when it, when, when it comes down, push comes to shove, they decide to go for it on fourth down rather than letting the kicker kick the field goal because they don't actually trust the kicker. They don't actually want to give control of the game to the kicker. Or maybe you're working on a group project and you say you believe in your teammates, but you actually do all the work yourself because you don't trust that your teammates are going to do, do a good job. You refuse to give control of your grade to your teammates and instead keep it for yourselves. Now, some of that faith might be justified. I'm a Cowboys fan, and our kicker is terrible this year. You know, or I've been on group projects where you know, my teammates really were slacking and not doing their job. But we say we have faith in God, the Almighty, God, the all-powerful, Jesus, who is better, Jesus, who is loving, who is sovereign, who cares for us. And so, what does this actually look like? Well, for some of us, it might mean, you know, actually taking the Sabbath, choosing a day when we don't work, because in our rest, we trust in God. Or maybe it looks like 
maybe it, it, it looks like choosing to forgive someone rather than holding on to our anger and wanting to control justice for ourselves and, and forgiving someone and entrusting justice to our Lord. Or maybe it looks like giving to the local church or giving to the poor, entrusting God to provide for us. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is going to go the way that we want. It doesn't mean that God will provide for us in the way that we want. You know, as a result of taking the Sabbath, maybe you don't get that promotion you wanted. As a result of forgiving, maybe God never shows forth his justice during your lifetime. Or maybe God is even calling some of you to a life of poverty for his glory. And yet, if we say Jesus is better, if we say that God is the God who we say he is, God who is all-sovereign, God who is all-powerful, loving, knowing, and good, then we trust in him. And so, we have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And we see how this means that we need to be alert to the dangers of unbelief. And we see how this also means that when we do believe, that our faith leads to obedience. And so when we see disobedience creeping into our heart, that's something that we need to be watch out for. But what else do we see from our passage? Well, the other thing we see from our passage is an, is an exhortation to remain anchored in faith together as God's house. In verse 14, we read, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, like the passage, like the verse back in chapter 2, with which Dr. Arthur's on, pre- preached on a couple weeks ago, this verse also has some nautical con- connotations because this word hold, holding our original confidence, uh, in the original language, has this connotation of holding fast, holding firm as a boat sailing towards that safe harbor. The images of this, you're a boat, the, the storm has come, the waves are tossing you all over the place, the winds are blowing you all over the place, and you're aiming for this safe harbor. And so the idea is holding fast, holding firm to your path, despite all the waves trying to push you in all these different directions, despite the wind trying to blow you in all these different directions, holding fast to your course towards that safe harbor. And so when these storms, when these circumstances of life threaten to push us in one direction or another, the answer isn't to up anchor. The answer isn't to choose a different anchor. The answer is to remain anchored to Christ. You know, I confess during this past year when our lives have been so uncertain, when we thought we were moving to Japan and we didn't, there was a strong temptation for me to try to find what things in life I could still control because I needed to have that control in my life. But honestly, that idea of me trying to control my life is the idea of you know, being on this ship and trying to somehow keep it steady with my own strength as this storm is blowing all around. We can try, but the truth is, we don't have the power to control our lives. Life is, our, our lives are outside of our hands. And so what can we do? The author of Hebrews urges us to remain anchored in faith. And so how do we remain anchored in faith to Jesus, who is better? Well, we've talked in the past 
about, you know, praying consistently, about being immersed in Scripture, about daily devotional life, about the vertical relationship and maintaining that relationship that we have with God. But in this passage of exhortation, the author of Hebrews talks about the importance of our horizontal relationship with one another. We see in this verse, we have come to share in Christ. And if we go back one verse, we read that we're to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. If there's one thing that the pandemic has taught us, it's that we need each other. When we're isolated from one another, when we don't see each other, it's hard. It's hard to live. It's hard to keep moving. It's hard to follow God. You know, in Proverbs, we read that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And we need each other to hone each other, to sharpen one another. We, you know, there's this, just our faith, there's an individual aspect to our faith. But, you know, American culture is one of the most individualistic cultures in the world. And so sometimes we forget that just as we're to remain faithful individually, we're also called to remain faithful together as God's house. No Christian can be a Christian alone. We're called to community with one another, and we're called to remain anchored in faith together as God's house. I'm reminded of uh, the story of Roger Bannister. I don't know if any of you know who he is, uh, but he was the first man to break the four-minute mile, the first person to run the mile in less than four minutes. At that time, it was thought that it was humanly impossible to run a mile less than four minutes. And the story goes that the way that he was able to break that four-minute mile was because he had two teammates, two partners, who during the race paced him. One teammate ran in front of him during the first half of the race through the first half mile, and the other teammate ran in front of him for the second half of the race. And those teammates were there to push him on, to show him how fast he had to go, to, to, keep, to prevent him from you know, falling behind so that he knew how, the pace that he had to go. And there was no way that Roger Bannister would have broken that four-minute mile if it wasn't for his teammates running alongside with him. In the same way, we need each other to remain anchored in faith as God's house. And so how do we do that? Well, there are three ways that, that I, I'd like to talk about today. And so we'll use the acronym SPA because we're talking about entering into God's rest in this passage. And so, you know, how do we go into the SPA and enter into God's rest? So we share three different things. The first thing is we need to share our struggles and our doubts with each other. And Dr. Arthurs has talked about this. We all have doubts. All of us, from me to all of you. And sometimes because of our shame, we hold those to ourselves. But we're called to humility. We're called to share one of these, these, things, these struggles with one another. For me to be humble, to share my doubts with you. For you to be humble and to say, yes, we all have these doubts. And to walk alongside me when I have those doubts. I had a friend in college... Um, he was a really good friend of mine. He was, he was one of the leaders in our fellowship. He was someone that many people looked up to. He was someone I looked up to. 
He led small groups. He, he led short-term missions trips. And then after we graduated, he went to grad school. And when he was in grad school, he really struggled to find Christian community. And while he was in grad school, he started to face different influences, influences from professors, influences from things that he was reading, that caused him to start to question whether the Bible is true. Start to question whether Jesus and God are real. And before he knew it, he decided, or before I knew it, I should say, he decided to turn his back on Jesus and turn his back on faith. Now, I think the reasons for that are incredibly complicated, but I suspect that part of the reason why he turned his back on faith was because of his lack of Christian community and his new location when he was going to grad school. As he was going with these struggles, there was no one really for him to bounce these ideas off of, bounce, bounce these things that he was wrestling with, with um, you know, consistently on a, daily, on a weekly on a basis uh, with people that he was meeting with. And so slowly, unbelief entered into his heart until he reached the point where he turned his back on God. And so, the first thing that I would encourage all of you to do is in our fellowship group meetings, in your friendships with one another, when you struggle with faith, talk with them, with your friends. Talk about your struggles with, uh, your, with mentors. Talk about your struggles with parents. Talk about your struggles with your friends and work through them together because we all have them. And yet God has given us each other to be able to walk alongside each other through those. The second thing I would say is that we need to be sharing praises and thanksgiving with each other. Because the truth is, it's too easy to have spiritual amnesia. Look at Israel. God did all these amazing things for Israel. All these miraculous events. And yet, a couple weeks later, when things got difficult, when they were hungry and didn't have food, or when they saw giants in this land, what happened? They forgot. They forgot everything that God did. They had spiritual amnesia. And so we need to be sharing our praises and thanksgivings with each other because when I'm going through hardship and I'm struggling with my faith and I'm wondering if God is real because of what the circumstances I'm going through, I need to be hearing about what God is doing in your life. I need to be knowing how God is working in your life so that I can see that God is still there and God is still working in this world. When you're struggling, you need to be hearing from me about what God is doing in my life so that you can know that God is real and God is still working. And you can give praise even though you're going through those struggles. And as we share praises and thanksgivings with each other, it also helps us to remember, to remember how God has been faithful to us in the past because our minds are so present-focused sometimes, and we forget about all the amazing things that God has done in our lives before when we're struggling with hardship. And so, even as some of us are struggling, we need to be sharing praises and thanksgivings with each other so that we can remember, to remember that God is all-powerful, to remember that God is good, to remember that God is all-knowing, to remember that God loves us, to remember that Jesus is better. And lastly, we need to share accountability for one another. The idea that comes to mind is uh, in the book of Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel that he's to be a watchman over Israel. 
And the idea that God is saying is, Ezekiel, your responsibility is to be a prophet to Israel so that when they're headed into unfaithfulness, so that when they're headed into a a path that isn't good away from me, you're to be the one, the prophet, to confront them and tell them so that hopefully they'll steer back. And we're to be accountable to one another and to share accountability for one another. That's a tall task, right? It's not just me me saying, you know, sharing about what I'm struggling with other people. It's, it's me saying, I am accountable for you, and you are accountable for me. And all this requires a lot of humility and a lot of trust, right? It requires a lot of humility to be able to share about my sin to my fellow brother and sister and to make myself vulnerable to them. But it also requires a lot of humility from the other person's part to be able to say, Yes, we are all sinners saved by grace. We are all broken people who need Jesus who is better. And so I will walk alongside you humbly because we all need each other. And also, if God somehow one day convicts you to convict someone of something, it also requires humility because in our limited nature, sometimes we just don't know the whole story. And so we need to be humble, to be open-minded, and to listen even as we're seeking to be accountable for one another. This has been incredibly important in my life. At various points in times, I've had brothers who come to me confronting me about my video game addiction and saying, hey, you're on, you're on your computer all the time playing video games. What's up with that? Or I've had my wife come up to me and say, you know, you're showing a lot of anger and selfishness to your children lately. Or I've had mentors come up to me and say, hey, you say that this is the calling that God has given you, but the way in which you're living your life is completely uh, orthogonal, completely 90 degrees with respect to where you, th- you say that God is leading you. We need to be accountable. We need to share accountability for one another. Because we're called to remain faithful as a church together. We're called to remain anchored in faith together as God's house. And so we have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. This means that we need to be alert to the dangers of unbelief, recognizing that faith, belief, leads to obedience. We need to remain anchored together in faith as God's house. As I reflect back on the story I told you at the beginning of Kikuk, uh, the, 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 the woman in the novel that I read. In some ways, when it came time for her faith to be tested, the decision had already been made for her. Because she was living during a time and in a place that was hostile to the Christian faith, she constantly had to be alert to the dangers of unbelief because, un- because her circumstances were constantly pushing her away from faith if, if, if she let them. And because of those same circumstances, her faith necessarily had to lead to obedience. Because if, if she truly believed, uh, the pressures of, of the culture necessarily caused her to have to follow God's way. And Kiku was faithful each week to meet, as, as the author of Hebrews later tells us in chapter 10, to, to, to be faithful, continuing to meet one another. Continuing to fellowship with those who helped her stay strong when she felt weak. Because God works through all of us to strengthen each other's faith. 
And so when the time came, when Nobuo's grandmother told, gave this ultimatum to Kiku, in some ways, her, her decisions had already been made because she already had been alert to the dangers of unbelief. Her faith was already leading to obedience in her life. And she was meeting with others, sharing all those things about her struggles, sharing praises and thanksgiving, sharing accountability with, those, with her friends. Her faith was strong, and so she could withstand that test. Her faith was strong, so she could enter God's rest. Now, unfortunately, this isn't a topic we have too much time for today. Uh, Minister Cola will preach in two weeks and expound a little bit more about what it means to enter God's rest. But suffice it to say, Kiku, in being faithful to God, was able to steer her ship towards that safe harbor. And I pray for all of us that that would be true for us in our lives from beginning to end. Let's pray. Father God, we need you. Oh, how we need you. We need your Holy Spirit at work within us individually. We need your Holy Spirit at work within us as a church. Because you've called us to faithfulness. And Lord, we recognize that our hearts, our hearts sometimes are oftentimes turn, are tempted to turn away from you, Lord. There's so many circumstances, so many things going on around us, whether it be friends, whether it be teachers, professors, whether it be coworkers, whether it be your, um, the, the, the anxieties and stress that the worries of life heap upon us, Lord. There are so many things that cause us to want to keep control of our lives instead of turning our lives over to you, God. And so, God, we need you. We need you. And, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful to you, that you would be working in our hearts to be able to be alert, that you would be working in our hearts to show how our faith is showing forth in obedience, that you would be working in our church such that we would be growing in community with one another, covenantally as you've called us to. Father, we thank you because we know you hear us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.